Welcome to We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. I'm your host, Lauren Lee. And who am I? I was your wacky 10th grade English teacher who would occasionally rap a Shakespearean soliloquy, would always encourage a live performance of a book report, and would occasionally dress up in costume as Professor Dumbledore to host an ethics debate, who then, after nearly a decade, decided to take the massive leap of faith to attend a coding boot camp, switch careers, and dive deep into the tech industry. I've been surprised by how many of the skills and lessons I learned as an educator have translated to my role in tech. So that got me thinking, have you taken a non-traditional route to tech? Or are you interested in transitioning yourself? This is a podcast that aims to interview career changers and folks who are diversifying tech. We'll hear stories from people who've taken unique paths and chat about the skills that they've transferred to their roles today. We're hoping to create a space for people to learn from one another, develop confidence, and debunk the antiquated notion that a computer science degree is required to succeed in tech. Come on, everyone. Let's dive in. My guest today is a software development engineer working on the mobile app versions of FreeTime, an Amazon app for children. They came to tech from social services, where they did incredible work and spent nearly 10 years managing low-income housing and working with adults experiencing homelessness. Their name is Lauren Granger, and I am so excited to be talking with them today. Thank you for being here, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Can you tell me more about the experiences that you had before you entered the tech industry? Yeah, sure. So coming out of high school, when I went to college, I was originally studying music, mm. vocal performance. I, I really enjoyed that in high school. But getting into college, like a lot of people, I had this realization that maybe I wanted to do something different. And I ended up taking some of the intro classes, including Psychology 101, and I loved it. Cool. Uh, it was great. And I ended up studying that in college. Out of college, I started working with homeless adults. And it was a good opportunity for me at the time. And it was something I was very interested in. Yeah. And the story behind how I actually got into specifically working in homelessness was that I was watching Barack Obama's inauguration, yeah. his first inauguration. And he made a comment about the importance of volunteering in your community. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was still in college at the time. And I literally just did an internet search for Seattle volunteer and a bunch of organizations came up and there was an organization that was working with formerly homeless women. Mm -hmm. And I thought this is kind of related to psychology. And so I reached out to them. I started volunteering Mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed working with people. And I really enjoyed having the opportunity to help people in a very direct one-on-one way. Yeah. And so once I was finished with college, I went and worked actually at a homeless shelter here in Seattle. And I did that for a number of years. I then worked for that same organization in their housing. So they run a shelter, but they also run housing. So I went and worked as an on-site case manager for about 30 residents. And all of my residents had some kind of mental health diagnosis and half of them drug court cases. So they also had substance abuse. Mm. And it was a really great experience. I did that for a number of years. And then I went to work for a different housing organization and I managed three HUD buildings. So HUD is housing and urban development. And so all the funding for those buildings came from HUD. I lived in one of them. I was the on-site manager. And then I had two other buildings that I also managed. And after doing that for about two years, I was like, I got to do something different. That's when I kind of made the transition into tech. 
Yeah. I mean, it's such important work that you were doing. It sounds really draining emotionally, though, I imagine as well, and could be something that may be difficult to sustain forever. I think that there are ways in which being a teacher like you were, or being in social services, or being in healthcare broadly could be sustainable. Yeah. But the way our society is currently structured, it's really not sustainable for a lot of yeah. folks. And I know for me, I got to the point where I think this happens to a lot of people when they've been in their industry for about 10 years yeah. is that you look around and you say, this is what I wanted to do 10 years ago mm-hmm. when I was first coming out of college. Is it still what I want to do? Mm-hmm. If I want to go further in this industry, I need to put more time, more money that I don't necessarily have mm-hmm. and a lot more emotional effort into this career. Is that what I want to do? And when I looked around at what I was doing, I realized I was going to have to probably go back to college and get a a master's degree in social work, which is something I wasn't particularly interested in. It was going to be a lot of money, not money. It was going to be a lot of going into debt, more student loan debt. I realized that I really enjoyed working with people face to face, Mm -hmm. but I didn't want to do a lot of paperwork if I was going to continue in social services. And I, after a lot of thinking about it, I realized I could also make a big difference in housing and on homelessness issues, particularly in this city, Mm -hmm. if I was making more money. I was connected with people who were making Mm. more money, frankly. There's a lot of power and status that we give to developers, particularly in Seattle. And I think that there's also a lot of misinformation about what it is to be homeless, Mm -hmm. particularly the homeless folks that you see, which are a very small percentage of folks experiencing homelessness, and who they are and where they came from and what they're doing. And so being in the position that I'm in now, I actually have the capacity to network with a broader scope of people and share the kinds of stories that I have and talk about harm reduction and talk about Mm. the mental health care system in this state. Yeah, to have that platform to share it. Yeah. Right. And it's fair, right, at that 10-year mark to reflect and look back and say, is this still something that I want to do day in, day out? And is there something else that I'm interested in? Can I pursue that and then still participate in the work that I'm doing in a different way, et cetera? Mm -hmm. I think that that is really self-reflective and important that we have moments in our lives where we check in and decide what is our next, you know, best step for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I knew people in social services who had been in business yeah, for a number of years. And then after 10 or 15 years had been, what I want to do is work in social services. What I want to do is work at a homeless shelter. And they made the opposite transition. So the idea that we're going to pick one career and do it for our entire lives is an outdated idea. I think we have the capacity to do a lot of things and learn a lot of things. Yeah. As a teacher, one of the favorite trips that I organized for my eighth grade students in particular was something that they sort of called an urban plunge. It was a three-day walking throughout Seattle, volunteering at different agencies and homeless shelters and interacting and engaging with and volunteering with individuals facing homelessness to gain empathy and to sleep in simulated shelters to not to experience homelessness by any means because they're incredibly privileged kids that go to an independent school, right? But to learn more about their city and to learn more about the individual stories and the circumstances that led to these life crises, et cetera, that be pointed to reasons and why we're facing this epidemic in Seattle, et cetera. It was so valuable. You know, kids would come home after those three days, just their eyes a little bit more open and having gained 
a bit more empathy for understanding that experience. And that trip was so powerful for me to participate in and organize. It was a big reason why I stayed at my job for as long as I did. I've heard about this before. There were students from my high school who did it back when I was in high school. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, Because I grew up around here. I'm, I'm from this area. Oh, right. It was really great trip because they, we gave them maps to navigate throughout the city. And it was incredible. They didn't have any social media or, or whatever. Like they didn't have their phones. So watching teenagers try to navigate a city was such a learning opportunity, incredible experience. Just even that little learning moment was, it was right. wild. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's an opportunity for people to gain and practice empathy and really see a smidgen of what it's like for some people experiencing homelessness. Exactly. It's so expensive to be homeless. It's financially expensive. Everything is more expensive when you have to buy ready-to-eat food. Mm-hmm. You can't go to Costco like I do and buy in bulk when you don't have the money to pay fines right when you get them. So now you're paying mm-hmm. fines and fees, and they rack up a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Even the ways that things aren't financially more expensive for folks experiencing homelessness, they're time more expensive. And there's a perception that people who are homeless don't have anything else that they're doing. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are employed. A lot of people are looking for work. A lot of people have caregiving responsibilities. And so if you have to get up in the morning and get from this place to that place to get your laundry done, and this place to that Mm -hmm. place to meet with the social security officer and from here to there to meet with your case manager. And if you miss any of those appointments, now you're missing your check or now you're missing your medications or whatever it is. The the cost in time is really, really high also. So building that kind of empathy is really important, I think. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I've heard the statistic that folks in Seattle facing homelessness walk up to five to 10 miles a day to get to the different services because we are famous for having incredible services, but they're not necessarily centralized in one particular place to find the the space that is providing right. private showers or a place to wash clothing. You know, they're spread out. And so just kind of right. the time that it takes to walk and get to those places too, or, you know, it's yeah. an incredibly nuanced thing that people easily gloss over myopically. For sure. Sure. And I want to push back a little bit on the like, we're famous for having great services, because I think that the people doing the work are doing great job. And I think that in many ways, services in Seattle are perhaps better than they are in other places. Yeah, but they're terrible. I understand why people don't want to stay in shelters having worked there, even when it's raining outside, even when it's cold. I understand why it is that people are reluctant to trust case managers. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult. So there are services in the city, but but I also don't want people who don't understand or haven't seen it to get the impression. I, I talk to a lot of people who don't have an idea and they'll say, well, People are coming from all over the place to Seattle because they hear that we have a lot of services mm-hmm. here. Uh, yeah, I've heard that. Everyone calls it free at all, and that's why they come here. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is people come here who are homeless for the same reason that a lot of my coworkers yeah. have come here, which is to find a job to because Seattle's a huge growing city. Mm, That's a really great point. Uh, Thank you for clarifying that. Can you tell me how you decided at that moment then? Why tech? Why was it that you chose tech to dive into and and how did you learn to code? So I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. Mm. I wanted to kind of explore some things. I was considering graphic design, user experience related to psychology. How do people think about things? How do people think about products? And then how do they physically interact with them? Sure. And then I was considering programming. 
and I had a friend who heard that I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. He was in grad school for psychology, and he was trying to gather data for participants. And he wanted to know, on a scale of one to seven, how happy are you? Mm. On a scale of one to seven, how sad are you? How mad are you? And not only measure what their response was, but how quickly they responded. So that was the research he was interested in. And he was telling me about how the software that he was looking into was primitively expensive. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I've been thinking about software. Give me a week to see what I can like putter around with and I'll try to pull something together for you. Wow. And I looked into it. I didn't know what I was doing. And he ended up actually going a different direction with his research and not using it. But I ended up building out this little iPhone app in Objective-C. I didn't know what I was doing. I asked a lot of questions on Stack Overflow. There were very nice people who responded. Oh, my gosh. And I built a little app that did that. How and cool. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I was hooked. And so I thought, I want to do this. I want to do software development. And the other thing that really encouraged me to do it was my partner, who worked in tech on and off throughout years mm -hmm. who I met actually working at the shelter. So he's worked in tech and he's worked in social services and he's actually making a career transition right now, kind of in the opposite direction away from tech and law into healthcare. Wow. So he's an EMT right now and he's planning to start school soon to be a nurse. Very cool. He wants to work in, in an ER, which is great. But his perspective was, well, you would be really good at software. The way that you think is really logical about things. You're really good at figuring out problems. You're very creative at solving these kinds of things. And he just kept on it. He was like, you could do this. You absolutely could do this. And I was like, well, it's fun, but I probably couldn't actually do it. I don't have a degree. And his perspective was, well, I didn't have a degree in it either. And I was like, yeah, but like, what do you do when you like need to know something and you haven't learned it? He was like, you learn it, you figure it out. That's what software does. Mm -hmm. Software is always changing. You just learn it. He's like, you can do it. That's so encouraging and so awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was really great. I'm very appreciative for his support. So yeah, I looked into it and I, I looked at different boot camps and I thought, oh man, I'm never going to have $10,000 to mm -hmm. 10-week boot camp. Never going to happen. Yeah. Never in my life, I thought, will I have $10,000 just sitting around? Right. They're very expensive and can be very polarizing in that regard. Mm -hmm. Boot camps are very expensive. And so I did a search for like Seattle free code boot camp and stumbled upon Ada Developers Academy. I was just like, to be real, I was in the fourth cohort. So Ada wasn't really well known at all. This was in the spring and I ended up being in the cohort that started in the fall. So this was like three or four months before cohort four started. And Ada didn't have its own space still. They were like working out of other people's offices. It was still very much in the startup phase. I was like, what do I have to lose? I'll just apply. And felt really fortunate that I got in. I went to Ada. And then after a year of doing that, I was like, I really, I love mobile apps. I want to keep working on mobile apps. Mm -hmm. And so from my job offers, I ended up at Amazon in part because that gave me an opportunity to work on an app. Huh, yeah. So at Ada, the last month of our classroom portion, we spend time learning a new technology and building something that we're interested in to then use kind of as a portfolio to showcase to employers when we're ready to start looking. It's called the Capstone Project. I built a mobile app for mine. Did you also do some mobile stuff in that? I did build a mobile app. Yeah. That's cool because it wasn't in our curriculum. Yeah. yeah we did not have it in our curriculum. We also had two weeks of JavaScript, maybe so little like the, the curriculum has really evolved since yeah. since that time. Every time I, I look at what they're doing, I'm amazed. 
just blown away by the caliber of students and what they're the pace at which they're learning. But yeah, I taught myself Swift. It was a newish language at the time. There were some teams were starting to switch into Swift from Objective C, and I was interested. So yeah, I built a little app in Swift. It was just an iPhone app. It had a Rails backend API, and it let you set up events that your friends could let you know if they were interested in going to. So you would say, hey, I'm available to watch movies and eat pizza tonight. I'm available to go to this concert. I want to go to that Mm -hmm. movie. And then your friends could see a list of what those events were and say, yeah, I want to go to that. And then you would get a notification. Hey, Lauren says that they want to go to that event with you. Oh, that's awesome. That's so cool that that helped you then discover what you wanted to do uh, in your career too. It was a lot of fun. I think it reinforced what I had kind of explored at the beginning, which was that I was interested in mobile apps and doing a largely Rails curriculum. I was like, is that the case? Is that what's still what I want to do? So to have that kind of project. Yeah. It's so neat that what got you excited about it originally was that mobile app. And then you kind of got to bookend your experience in Ada with that as well. That's really neat. And I always felt very overwhelmed during the program when people would ask me, do you want to do front end? Do you want to do back end? Do you know what language you want to write in? And it felt there's so much out there yet. I don't know what I need to kind of experience all the things first before I can zoom in and be able to answer that. Yeah. I presume by the time you went to Ada, they were no longer doing a video as part of your application. That's right. No, I was not. But did you have to film a video? We had to film a video. It was really a lot. I know from talking to the staff that they were like, this is so much. It was a five minute video. It couldn't be like a second over five minutes. But a five minute video for every applicant is a lot when you have 400 applicants. Yeah. Yeah. So they would watch them on like two times speed. So I did that. And one of the questions that they asked was, if you get into Ada and you're in the tech industry, like, where do you see your yourself in five years mm-hmm. yeah and I remember my response was I don't know I don't know where in the tech industry I'll be I don't know how to answer that question but I do know that I have values and ethics that are really important to me some of those are community some of those are learning tenacity being curious treating others fairly and know that no matter where I go as long as I stand by those things and operate within that yeah. structure that I'll get somewhere really mm. cool that I'll get to do really cool things. That's a great attitude to have. It's so hard to know where you're going, particularly when you get to tech. Because like you said, it's, it's, it's huge. It's a huge space. Right. It feels like you have to know exactly what you want to do, but you don't. You just need to be true to who you are and keep learning and keep pressing ahead. And like you will get somewhere super cool. You'll get to work on super cool things, meet super cool people, work on really interesting problems, be frustrated sometimes. But if you keep within what's important to you, you'll be fine. That's encouraging to say. Thank you for saying that. So bringing us to today, can you tell me more about what you do now at Amazon on the free time team? Yeah, I am a mobile software developer. I originally started working on our Fire OS Mm. team, builds the Kids Edition tablet. And I recently switched to a mobile team where we build Android and iOS apps. Same content, same books and apps and stuff for kids. It's really fun. It's really great being in an organization that has an emphasis on kids and family and building a product that like helps kids read and also play fun games and the very least keep kids occupied with kid appropriate content when their parents need them to be occupied. So a lot of fun problems. I'm really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying my new team and getting to learn some new technologies and having that opportunity to stay within the same product. About six months ago, I was like, my original goal had been to be here for two years. I was like, I'm going to make it 
two years at Amazon. I'm going to grin and bear it. And, it, and instead of me being miserable, like I was afraid it would spend a minute. Oh, that's so cool to hear. So yeah, two years, I was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to stay or am I going to leave like my original plan was? Mm. And I had this opportunity came up to stay in the same organization, same product, but switch kind of tech stacks. And two months into it, I'm, I think it's been a great decision. Yeah, really great decision that you got to like push yourself and learn something totally new, totally different, but then also to stay on something that feels really important. And it's so cool to be working in a space with coworkers that probably also are excited about creating stuff for kids that probably just creates a nice community within your Oregon team. I think it's so neat that, you know, the internet, while it has its great parts of it and is a wonderful place and community, there also are some dark parts of it. And so to be out there helping kids and guaranteeing for families to make sure that they're not seeing that type of stuff is really, I mean, important. So that probably feels really good. And we have like a lot of tools to help parents say like, hey, you have to like do a certain amount of reading or a certain amount of educational content. Before you get to XYZ. Yeah. Yeah, before you get to play games or yeah. we also have some tools that let parents see like oh hey your kid was reading brown bear brown bear and here are some like questions you can ask them about that book so tools to help parents engage with their kids about what it is they're learning and that kind of thing is really valuable oh my gosh yeah kids have to grow up in this world with cell phones i didn't get a cell phone until i was 17 or something right it's the reality let's just acknowledge it right right yeah and if you don't have those skills to figure out then it's gonna be like four o'clock in the morning and you have been playing candy crush for like hours right because you're procrastinating and because these devices they can be really addicting right and so it's a skill we have to manage it and we have to learn and so helping parents have the tools to begin to do that is it's a really enjoyable thing to do yeah that's that's really awesome uh at my high school that I taught at we were a tech first school meaning that we had laptops for each student and Mm -hmm. it always actually felt really important that we were doing that because I felt as though I was teaching them how to manage their time with this tech and to have a computer open and not be distracted by the things that pop up on your screen, but then to pay attention and be able to engage in a dialogue about catching the ride, to be able to talk about that while also having a screen going on. And so I felt like that was Mm -hmm. somewhat of a modern way of having to help them. But of course, I know that they struggled with that too, because it's temptation too. I mean, we think we all struggle with it. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, right. We all do. And so, yeah, I felt like it was important to be like tackling that and helping them make sense of that before then sending them off to college where they didn't have skills or equipped with that type of stuff. But okay. So what kept you, would you say from entering the tech industry before you did? My father has worked in technology space for a long time uh, since I was a kid. We always had computers growing up. Yeah. And I was exposed to them early on. I was also exposed to a lot of reading and a lot of mm-hmm. people activities, if that makes sense, and very much encouraged sure. to do that as well. And I think that part of the reason I probably didn't go into tech earlier was because I was interested in music and I was interested in books mm-hmm. and I was interested in helping other people. And I was good at that. And we're oftentimes drawn towards what we're good at. Right. If you're getting encouraged. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Right. I was not good at math. Or at least I felt like I wasn't good at math. I wasn't good at the way math was taught in school. And I had this idea that like you needed to be really good at math in order to do anything related to software. Mm -hmm. The little bit of software stuff that I did when I was a kid was Lego logo that we had and you could move a little turtle around the screen. And I've heard people talk about, oh yeah, they used that when they were a kid and it was the thing that they did that made them be like, tech is cool. And I remember doing that exact same thing and being like, this is weird 
weird. I don't understand it. I don't see the point was mostly it. Mm -hmm. I'm moving a little thing around a screen. Who cares? Right. It didn't meet what I felt was valuable. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said, I I struggled it with math in school in part because I didn't feel like I could be good at it, Mm -hmm. which in hindsight is ridiculous. When I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do between social services and doing this, I actually took calculus at the community college and got a 4.0. Get out. Loved it. Like I absolutely loved it. It was amazing. That is so cool. Good and I, I enjoy it. I, I really enjoy logic puzzles. I enjoy thinking through things. The issue I'm working on with work right now like requires going, okay, if I have this particular piece of information, how is it going to get passed through this kind of logic in a way that not only is correct, but it's clear to the next set of developers. I love that. I think it's super great. I didn't know that that's what technology was. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there were all of the other, like, kids getting discouraged. I wanted to take small engine repair in high school and a computer science class. I remember I went into the guidance counselor's office and the guidance counselor, I vividly remember saying, are you sure you want to take those classes? Only boys ever take those classes. Well, okay. <laughs> and this was like, this would have been 2002. Like, not like, not that long ago. Right. And I was just kind of like, oh, Oh. well, I guess not. So I ended up taking some music classes, which is great. I love music. It, It was a huge passion of mine. But, you know, it wasn't the same, the quality of opportunity. That was that was given. So I think about those things sometimes. Sure. I don't know that it's a valuable exercise to play the what if game mm-hmm. because I think that part of what makes me valuable in my position right now here is my experience in social services, is my background in psychology. Yeah. So you wouldn't change your path. Yeah. No, I love that. Those things make me a better programmer. Absolutely. Well, let's go there. Your past in social services. How's that helped you today as an engineer at Amazon? I think that we talk a lot about technical skills when we talk about software. And those are valuable. Those Mm -hmm. are super useful. And understanding the fundamentals. Sure. Great. Good. But it's always changing Mm -hmm. what the specific tech stack is that you need to know. And the people skills, the professional skills, sometimes people call them soft skills, but I really like to call them professional skills, mm-hmm. are incredibly valuable. I like that reframing a lot. I will borrow that. Thank you. They're incredibly valuable. And you need professional skills. You need time management skills. When you have 35 clients today and tomorrow somebody's going to quit and now you have 42 and most of those clients mm-hmm. have some pretty severe mental health issues and they're all independent housing. You're responsibility is to help them keep their housing. How do you help 42 people get to appointments, make sure their apartments are clean or at least livable, deal with them when they're having crises, help connect them to services, and do all the paperwork involved in that? You have to have really good time management skills. You have to be able to prioritize when everything is a crisis. Yeah, wow. And I also think that there's a there's a level of explaining a very complex, often emotionally wrought problem mm-hmm. to someone in authority so that they understand where you're coming from so that you're really clear. I had on an occasion testified in mental health court, which if you have ever heard of people being committed, involuntarily committed, mm-hmm. basically you're saying to a justice, I believe in my capacity as mental health professional working with this person that they are a danger to themselves or others 
others to the extent that I am asking you to take away their some of their rights, their freedom of movement. Mm. And in some circumstances, they will be forcibly medicated. I mean, you're asking a lot and you have to explain to yourself, first of all, mm. why it is that you think that that's necessary. Did you explain it to several people? And you have to explain it to this judge whose responsibility mm. is to make sure that this person's rights are being respected and that we're keeping that person in the community safe. And so when you go into those situations repeatedly, you learn how to make a really clear argument. You learn how to make sure that what you're saying is really true. And those skills have served me the best in in software development. Wow. It sounds like so many of those skills are transferable. And I'm sure your coworkers now are so grateful for that. And I'm sure you are. You've said that, right? Like you are so grateful for that experience. And I'm so grateful for that experience. Yeah. Over the holidays, I was dealing with an issue where me and and another colleague who his technical skills are outstanding. He's, Mm. you know, one of those kids who's come out of four-year school and he's whip smart. And so he's gotten a job at Amazon and He's super bright. So mm-hmm. we're working on this problem together and senior engineer from some other team sends an email and was like, we really need to talk about this issue. And what you guys are attempting to do is I'm, I have some serious questions about it. This tone in this email, like you guys are really messing up. Oh my God. And so I set up a call and me and my coworker go into a conference room. We sit down, we pull up the call and I just tell him, I'm like, Hey, like I can handle most of this. Um, if he's got a specific question that I need your backup on, I'll let you know. But like, I'd like to have you here because you've also worked on some of this, but like, don't, I, I can handle it. We have the whole call. The guy is irritated at first. Like, how could you be doing this thing? Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, dude, I understand. I understand where you're coming from. Like you have valid concerns and here, let me address them one by one. Let me explain to you what we're doing. Let me explain why we're doing it. And go through the whole column. By the end of it, he's like, okay, well, you know what? It sounds like you guys actually have things like really well covered. Uh, so I'll let you get back to that. And we hang up the call and my, my coworker who I think he's like 22, maybe. He like kind of looks at me and he's like, wow, you handled that a lot better than I would have. And I just kind of laughed and I was like, it's not my first rodeo, buddy. <laughs> I'm 32. <laughs> This is in my first career. I've done this in a more serious manner. So yeah, I can deal with some guy who's like <laughs> concerned that we're messing things up. Has an ego. Uh, a, it's a moment to flex almost and be like, yeah, I can manage these things. This is no big deal for me. <laughs> but it took a while to be able to get there. I will say that I've learned since being here because I've been here for two and a half years, which mm-hmm. when you're in school, they're like people who've been in the industry for two and a half years, like know everything. They're like wizards. Oh, sure. When you're two and a half years in, you're like, I know nothing. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> you look at people still in school and you're like, you know too many things already. How is this happening? But I do know some things. And I think that one of the things I'll say is that, yes, I have those professional skills coming in. But it really took until like 18 months in before my technical skills were at a point where I could leverage my professional skills. I did a lot of studying. I did a lot of learning. I did a lot of writing code. And then I was able to lean into these professional skills. So then all of a sudden, I felt like I was behind. I think probably to some extent, I will always feel like in some way I'm behind. Mm. Shout out to imposter syndrome. Right. (laughs) But suddenly having level of technical skills, where now I could lean into my professional skills, I made this huge jump. And I was talking to my manager about this. He was like, I really feel like I saw you make this huge jump. Yeah. In the way you're coming from. And I was like, yeah, because I finally had the ability to communicate what was going on I finally was able to say like oh no I was right about that thing 
Right. Or, oh, I understand what you're saying. And there's been a miscommunication here. Even to see that. Yeah. To acknowledge right. it. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. It's when they start to balance out between the two skill sets that you're bringing to the table. Right. Yeah. Right. Huh. And there's a thing that happens when you are a person in tech is that people will discount what you have to say and they will assume that you don't necessarily know what you're talking about Mm -hmm. and when you also assume that you don't know what you're talking about then there's a miscommunication that can happen as you gain more skills you will recognize the places in which like no you actually knew what you were talking about and that person wasn't listening I have a coworker who a little bit further into her career than me by about six months and I remember her saying to me I've gotten to this point where I'll ask a very specific question and some of the guys on our team will say no and then they'll explain to me the thing I just explained. So she said, so I've just started saying, so yes. And they'll go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah okay, yeah. Yeah, So yeah. just this, like, <laughs> you have to have enough confidence in what yeah. you're doing. And that's yeah. that's yeah. a difficult place to get to, but, but keep at it because you'll, you'll get there. I appreciate you saying that so much, so, so much. And I was going to ask, can you tell me about a time that you have felt like an outsider and how you've dealt with that feeling? And it sounds like that's a part of it is your your own self-advocate yeah and I think that the important thing to do is like find your people Mm -hmm. yeah find other people who you can trust and there's kind of two camps of people you need to find you need to find other engineers or other whatever your QA folks other whatever your job title is whoever knows what your skill set is who also have a similar background and experience to you yeah and talk to them and commiserate with them because it's much easier to say, whoa, I had this experience and I don't know if someone was treating me a certain way because that's their perception of me. They see me as this, you know, URM in tech. Or if I'm just wrong, mm-hmm. that wasn't part of the conversation. I just wanted to solve my problem, but I want to talk to somebody about it. Talking to somebody who is part of like your group of people who are, you know, your people, that is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And I think the second group of people that is important to find are senior folks, people who you look up to, managers, principal engineers, senior engineers, who you can confide in, who you can mm-hmm. turn to and say, you know what, I'm tasked with doing this thing. I actually don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where to start. Here's what I'm thinking. People who you feel confident won't go like, ooh, I can't believe I don't know that. Because the fact of the matter is most people aren't actually thinking that. Most people don't care. They're going to help you answer a question or they're not. But if you have a course of people that you feel comfortable turning to, you can reduce a lot of that friction. Right. That safe space to say, I'm really out of my comfort zone right now. I really don't even know where to start. And so to get guidance in moments like that are right. So crucial, right? Because it can feel really scary and terrifying and whatever it is, you know, in those moments. And so to have someone say, hey, here's where you can get started. Or I've been there too. And just to feel Mm -hmm. you're not alone in that moment is really valid. Yeah. Well, and I think senior engineer mentors, Mm -hmm. if you can suss out who are the folks who want to be helpful, they like really care about having more diversity in tech. Sure. But they don't know. They're clueless sometimes. They want to do the right thing. They just don't know. Sure. You can build a cooperation with them where you can say, hey, like I need help with this thing. And you can also say to them like, hey, I saw this situation go down. I wish that you had said something to have folks like that in your space who are receptive to that and will say, yeah, you know what? Thank you for that. Next time I know what to do. Mm-hmm. is incredibly empowering because yeah. there are folks out there who really do want to be better allies and they just don't know how. Just yeah. clueless. And I mean, I feel like I'm a clueless ally. I mean, I try to be an ally. I 
think I'm clueless sometimes and having folks that I can turn to who can call me out mm-hmm. wow Lauren you like should have said something differently mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or this kind of language is better than that kind of language I appreciate that mm-hmm. so finding those folks who yeah. can support you and then you can help them as well and I think it's really important it feels good because then it doesn't feel selfish of a relationship or something like that. It feels nice to be in a reciprocal, I'm helping you, you're helping me conversation. And so I hear that. And it's really important to find people like that in your life for sure. Okay. So do you have any more advice that you would want to share for those that are interested in transitioning into tech? I think that there's a paradox in starting in tech, which is that you hear it's really hard. Mm. And in some ways it is really hard. There are some ways of thinking that you have to learn to wrap your head around Mm -hmm. you have to learn how to be comfortable in discomfort Mm. oh yeah there's different kinds of being comfortable in discomfort there's a lot of being comfortable in discomfort that i did working in social services there's a difference between learning to be comfortable sitting with other people's pain and there's learning to be comfortable sitting with your own pain for me that second one is the harder one and learning to be like, I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I'm in over my head. I feel like I keep trying at this and I'm Mm -hmm. just banging my head against the wall and I'm okay. The fact that I keep going at this means I'm learning something. doesn't mean I'm not learning. That means I am learning. I'll come back to it later and I won't have to learn this again. Yeah, yeah. That's really difficult. But once you can get that kind of stuff down, a lot of the stuff that we do on a day-to-day basis as software developers is not hard. A lot of it's going to meetings. A lot of it's communicating with people. Mm-hmm. The hard problems are not the software problems. The hard problems are the people problems. And there's nothing magical about the tech industry. It's not a magical place where only super smart mm-hmm. wizards work. They're just normal human beings, all my coworkers. Yeah. All of them. And this idea that it's like a magical kingdom where like only really smart people go and you have to figure out the keys to get in is gatekeeping yeah. and ridiculous. So yes, there is a hard component. There are things that are difficult and you have to learn. Of course. Don't let that keep you away from doing it because you are smart enough and you are capable enough. That's really encouraging. I think the advice to separate your self-worth from moments of when you don't know and don't understand something is really pivotal. And I think the moment that I understood that myself was a, it was a changing point for me that just because I didn't understand something didn't mean that I'm not smart enough to be in this industry or that I'm not smart enough to be in the position I'm in, whatever it is. And so, yeah, I appreciate you saying that for sure. Okay, Lauren, make your shout out. What would you like the listeners to go check out? I would love for listeners, particularly if you are in Seattle, to check out the issues like not a specific place but get tapped into the issues around housing and homelessness mm-hmm. in the city they're complex they're difficult it is challenging sitting with other people's pain mm-hmm. it's challenging looking at poverty that's why we have a lot of homeless encampments around mm-hmm. and they are getting swept by the city which means the city comes in and posts a notice and then comes back two or three days later and throws everyone's things away yeah and all their belongings in the world it makes me so angry and those are issues that there's a vocal group of people in this city who are your neighbors who don't want to look at homeless people, think they all came from somewhere, who have a lot of moral ideas that they want to ascribe. And I would strongly encourage you to take a look and practice empathy. Mm-hmm. I would encourage folks who want to donate money 
or get involved with organizations to look into the Downtown Emergency Services Center, mm-hmm. which is where I first started working. They're an amazing organization. They run a low barrier shelter, so folks don't have to be on medications or sober in order to stay there, like a lot of shelters enforce, mm-hmm. which means people can come inside. And that's really a first step to eventually taking medications on a regular basis mm-hmm. if that's what's best for their health. They also house people regardless of whatever their issues are. Mm. They house people first. So important. And they were a pioneer in this kind of housing first model. Mm-hmm. So I strongly encourage folks to check out them and to support them because they're doing outstanding work. You yeah. know? And then, of course, Ada Developers Academy, which changed my life. I'm constantly impressed by the caliber of the students coming out, by the curriculum and how it's always changing, and by the organization, broadly speaking, the staff mm-hmm. and the students and the alum and the force of all of everybody really working to make Ada great and evolving and growing. It's a great organization. Yeah. Yeah. Enough good things about it. This is your own Obama inauguration inspiration speech moment. Get involved, <laughs> folks. Get involved. Do it. Do it, right? I mean getting outside of your yourself and helping other people. Yeah is the best antidote for your own worries. Hell yeah. It's so easy to get up in your own head. Yeah. Yeah. Focus on someone else for a little bit. It helps. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's your selfish reason to help other people. <laughs> for sure. Lauren, uh, where can people find you online? People can find me on Twitter and they can also find me on LinkedIn and they can also check out my website, which is laurengranger.com. Super simple little website with some HTML on there, but it's got all the links cool. as well. Okay. We'll send them there. All right. Well, thank you so much again for chatting with me today. And thank you for sharing all of your life experiences and advice for listeners. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's a wrap on another episode of We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. Be sure to rate and subscribe anywhere you can find podcasts and check us out next week for another story and lessons learned from an unconventional path to tech.